So there is a conversation about how do you go about protecting these justices while also protecting the right uh, to free speech and to protest. That conversation matters. It's a worthy one in the United States. It's worthy to have that conversation about how you protect the rights of people while protecting the rights of people. And that's what the courts are for. They look at both parties, they look at their argument, and they come to a a conclusion. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. But clearly when you have people protesting in front of the justices' homes regarding Roe v. Wade, and it's possible overturning, the purpose here is intimidation. Then you have what is an ongoing conversation a subject that somehow has been pushed to the side in America, and that is the bigotry of college campuses. When they do about go about this, this, this race-based affirmative action and, well, avoiding admitting Asian students even though they are absolutely qualified. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. You sent it out through the Legal Insurrection Foundation, which people can be a part of. You filed a brief in the Supreme Court in support of these uh, students, Asian students, challenging race-based affirmative action. What's happening here and exactly how far within the the university or, or even the high school system in places does this go? Well, this has been a controversy in a bunch of places. There was Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia where this was an issue. So basically what you have is uh, these soft factors being introduced. And Harvard has been the most famous, and the lead case in the Supreme Court is uh, a group representing Asian students against Harvard, is they introduce soft factors with the uh, you know, personality profiles, things like that that allow the administration to manipulate the racial balance of an incoming class. And uh, the Asian students who were applying to Harvard were able to show, and I forget what the precise numbers were, but they had to receive 100 or 200 points or whatever it was higher on the SAT in order to get an equal admit rate to uh, African-American and Hispanic students. And so they were arguing that these soft factors were just a way of introducing racial discrimination and ethnic discrimination into the admissions process and that it was not, you know, justified under the law. So that's the issue. And of course, Harvard pioneered the use of soft factors to discriminate back in the 1920s when Jews were the target, when too many Jews were getting, in their view, were getting admitted into Harvard. They moved away from grades. I don't think they had the SATs back then, but they moved away from grades and so-called hard factors to soft factors. And so that's really what's at stake. The U.S. Supreme Court has carved out a very narrow pathway for schools to use race in admissions, and uh, it's time to overrule that, to overturn it, and to, to get rid of this. So when, when they're presented with this, when Harvard and, and, and other universities, uh, certainly we've seen this in high schools in New York, as, as you bring up, and certainly I, I've discussed, when we see this, they see this, they don't recognize this as bigotry of the highest level? No, I think they, they approach it two ways. Legally, to try to get it through the courts, and they've been successful, including in the U.S. Supreme Court, they say, well, a racially diverse class has an educational value to it that justifies it because you can't otherwise just use race as a factor. They said that if you have a racially diverse class, you have a robust uh, 
um, uh, you know, campus dis- discussion and robust uh, and diverse viewpoints on campus. So that's how they got it through the Supreme Court in the past. And we filed a brief uh, in this case, a so-called amicus brief, friend of the court brief, in which we argue that that was the premise that the U.S. Supreme Court allowed this, that there was an educational benefit through viewpoint, increased viewpoint diversity, but it hasn't materialized that the premise of allowing this has proven to be false, that campuses are less intellectually and diverse and less diverse of viewpoint than they've ever been. So if that was the premise on which the Supreme Court would allow racial discrimination, it's failed, and they should re- revisit that issue. The other way that the Harvard and the others uh, you know, defend it is they will deny that it's actual you know, in Uh, intentional or actual discrimination. They will simply say that, no, you know, we view everybody equally and, you know, these soft factors are important and, you know, there's no discriminatory intent there. So those are the two ways they handle it. But before the Supreme Court is really, the question is, was there discrimination by Harvard and the University of North Carolina? And if there was, was it lawful or not? Was there a valid educational purpose that would override your constitutional protections, and the students argue, and we argue, no, there's not. Yeah, I, I guess my, my argument is, or my, my response is, talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com, is that in, in a world of, of wokeness, it would seem that students at Harvard would be most offended by the idea that you have... Uh, too many, right? You're specifically going to exclude Asian students because of a possible cultural propensity to study harder uh, than than others, which I think is not a, a wrong thing to say. I think it's a very honest thing uh, to to say. Don't you deal with a lot of students all the time there at, at Cornell? Do students ever get confused by which part of their of the wokeness they're supposed to go with? Does do, do moments like this make people stop and say, wait a second, what is this really all about? What is it that I'm, I, I'm thinking here, and what does the rational mind say? Yeah, well, I mean, I can't speak for the students, but I think what is happening is there's a hierarchy of identities on campuses, and uh, Asian students are finding that they're not very high up in that hierarchy. Um, you know, so that's been a topic of broad discussion, both, you know, uh, on the internet, so to speak, and elsewhere, uh, you know, and so the question becomes, you know, is it okay to discriminate in favor of one minority if the result is another minority is getting uh, the short end of the stick? And that's, you know, the question that students don't talk about, nobody wants to talk about on campus. So let me move the topic, if if if, if I may, uh, to what we're seeing with uh, the justices and the protests that we're seeing at at, at people's uh, homes. Um, there, there's a, a question about what is the right to protest and the right to free speech versus the right to privacy and not intimidating people. 
Uh, is I know that there is, for example, 18 U.S. Code 1507, as people have shared that with me, that if the um, intent is to influence any judge, um, you, you can be uh, arrested, right? And I would argue that what we're seeing is the concept of intimidation in front of these justices' houses. But is there an argument to be made for it? Well, this look, this is just free speech, and they're letting themselves be heard, or is can this be... Uh, seen as clearly intimidation and something that governors in the states of Maryland and Virginia can do something about or that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, should do something about? Well, you know, there's a long history on the left. Um, I remember it happened during Scott Walker's days and and many other uh, politicians of going to people's homes. And when you go to somebody's house, that's a message. That's a message of intimidation. If they want to protest, they can protest. There are tons of places they can pr- protest. No one is stopping them from pro- protesting. But when you go to a house, particularly a judge's house, um, you're sending a message that we know where you live. And when you do it with the message that uh, you better not decide a case a certain way or we could be back, uh, that's, I think, clearly a violation of law. And the fact that Democrat politicians are defending it, the fact that Chuck Schumer and others are defending this, the fact that the outgoing White House press secretary is defending this is outrageous. I mean, I've I I can't say that certainly no one has ever protested at a liberal judge's house. I've never heard of it. I wouldn't support it. But they're all on board with this. They are all on board with now the Supreme Court justices are going to have to worry when they open their back door who's going to be there or when they go down their driveway who's going to be there when it comes to making a decision and that's really outrageous it's illegal and the fact that merrick garland who is all over parents protesting at school boards has been silent about this is outrageous they should be prosecuting the people who are standing outside some uh, supreme court justice's house screaming for a particular result in a case it is something uh, for the administration to say that these people are dealing with, as Speaker Pelosi said, righteous anger, but yet parents are domestic terrorists. I mean, that's a uh, where 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 does uh, Merrick Garland draw the line on domestic terrorism? Well, I mean, you know, he uh, I've written this before, you know, thank you, Mitch McConnell, whatever else you think of Mitch McConnell. Thank you, Mitch McConnell, for keeping this guy off the Supreme Court. He is a disaster. He's an embarrassment. He has sullied the Department of Justice, which already wasn't doing very well. Uh, Really, he has been the worst. And it's really a shame uh, what he has done to that department and how he has politicized things. Uh, And and this is just another example. You know, he should be all over this issue, but he's not because of politics. 